0: Let's stand and take our Bibles tonight. Second Thessalonians, our people are coming in right now, and I hope everyone gets what we're gonna cover this evening and it'll we'll be encouraged to you. Second Thessalonians, I want to go to chapter two and we'll begin reading from verse seven. Second Thessalonians two, beginning reading from verse seven. And uh, for those of you in class I hope that you go on, on the live stream and catch us on the podcast tonight. Now, tonight is a little bit more tentacle, so we're going to read carefully the scriptures. If I, I'll try to finish it tonight. If I don't, we'll continue it. But I do want you to catch the, uh, the study this evening. It's a very important one, and so you're going to have a discerning mind about, uh, about this particular subject we're going to look at tonight. 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 7. Say amen of you there. Amen. For the mystery of iniquity doth already work. Only he who now letteth will let until he be taken out of the way. And then shall that wicked be revealed whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. Even him whose coming is after the working of Satan with all power and signs and wonders. Notice starting with verse 10. I'm going to have you underline some things you may not have underlined before. And with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish... Because they received not the love of the truth that they might be saved. and You want to underline that last phrase. Because they received not the love of the truth that they might be saved. You want to focus on that a little bit there later on. And then verse 11. For this cause, God shall send them strong delusion that they should believe a lie. Underline that phrase, that they should believe a lie. Then notice verse 12. That they all might be damned who believe not the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. And again, that last phrase, who, had, who believed not the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness, okay? Verse 13. Now, we didn't, we didn't cover this. This is our, 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 our starting point tonight is verse 13. But we are bound to give thanks always to God for you. Now remember, before verse 13, Paul has been talking about end times. He's been talking about the tribulation. He's been talking about uh, the spirit of the tribulation period and the rejection of Jesus Christ and a, and a, a, de- a spirit of deception that God will allow on planet earth. And then now in verse 13, notice he transitions his letter back to the Thessalonians. And remember, he's talking about people who do not believe. They've chosen not to believe. You want to keep them back in your mind. These are people that have chosen not to believe the truth. He focuses our attention back to verse 13 on these believers at Thessalonica who did believe the truth. And notice what he says here. But we are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord, because God has chosen you, God has chosen you, uh, God has from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth. Whereunto... He called you by our gospel to the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Um, We're going to look at this phrase tonight, verse 13, or the context of this. This is pretty much the theme of tonight's service. Paul is talking about these Thessalonian believers, and when you read this without looking at it very carefully, you might be misled to misinterpret this. And Paul says here, I'm thankful to God always for you, brethren, who are beloved of the Lord. And notice this phrase, because God has, from the beginning, chosen you to salvation. Now if you just stop there, you just stop there, and just take that phrase, you can inadvertently and erroneously develop a doctrine that is not found in the Bible. That's right. yes, sir. Amen. Okay? And if you've gone through discipleship, which is why we encourage you to go through discipleship, these are some things we talk about. And tonight I want us to look at verse 13 and 14, which need to be taken together. Is to understand the word chosen and called and the purpose of our choosing calling. And what does that all mean? And I want us to look at tonight a message entitled Satan's Deadly Flower. And uh, we're going to see some things tonight. It's going to be kind of more of a teaching message, and as I get to the end, I'll preach a little bit there. But I want you to catch us tonight because what I'm going to tell you about and teach you this evening, predominantly is found in the majority, if not all, Protestant churches. Predominantly, if not all, Protestant churches. And so it's very important you catch this. And in fact, we must be very careful because this doctrine, this false doctrine we we'll are going to look at this evening, has insidiously made its way into Baptist churches. And not all Baptist churches are the same. You want to be very careful of churches that call themselves Reformed Baptists. Uh, even among those who call themselves Conservative Baptists, you want to be very, very careful of that. And so tonight I'll try to do the best I can with God's grace and help understand this topic. But really this evening what I really want to get into, I'm going to kind of, kind of get us going on it. And then I want us to examine a few verses. Now there's a number of verses and we're not going to get to all of them tonight. It'll be too much, it be too overwhelming. We're going to look at three or four, four verses that are used to establish a false doctrine. It kind of follows the same thought, verse 13, that Paul uses in a way to understand a salvation, but it's misinterpreted and misapplied. And what I want you to do tonight is come away thankful to God that God's word is not confusing. And uh, God's Word is very clear in what it says, but you have to interpret Scripture according to that, and uh, we'll probably in a, in a subsequent message talk about the interpretation of Scripture, why it's important to, to rightly divide the Word of Truth, and how to interpret it correctly there. So tonight, I want you to bear with me this evening, I want you to take some good notes this evening, I don't want you to come away confused if you are, uh, the staff guys already know we're going to be looking for you, uh, to get you unconfused, and to get you out of place of being bewildered, and having great, just great confidence and, and understanding in the Word of God. Now Father, bless your Word this evening, use it greatly in our lives, build us up in the word of your, of your grace, we thank you, you're not the author of confusion, but you're a God of order, and tonight we pray, give clarification, open our eyes, behold wonderful things out of thy law, we'll thank you for this now tonight, in Jesus' name, and all of God's people say, amen, amen. okay, you may be seated, how many of you are like me, you love flowers? But you're not necessarily a flower expert, amen? I know a good flower when I see it. I can't tell you the name or species. I, I, I tell my wife sometimes, I said, I think you probably should have, in addition to getting a degree in music, I think you should have gotten a degree in botany because there's not, I don't think there's a species of flower or plant that she's not aware of. She just has a knack for those things. I think it's something she got from her family. And, uh, you know, flowers are very beautiful. If you've ever been to you know certain flower gardens or rose gardens, you're just kind of amazed by that. And, but uh, there are some species of flowers which are very beautiful to see but can be very deadly to your health. And uh, experts are disagree as to which, which flowers are the most deadly. I was trying to do a little bit of study on that, and I, I was amazed at the different degrees of, of expert opinions as to which are the most deadly when it comes to toxicity and ability to, to kill you. But I'm gonna name off two of them tonight because they're all agreed that there's two particular flowers that are very beautiful but are very deadly. Number one, the first flower I want you to consider with me tonight is the oleander. How many are familiar with the oleander flower? Very beautiful flower. You'll see that in many, many places. Places. Well, the are very beautiful, but the entire plant, from the stem all the way through the petals, is a very dangerous and deadly plant in terms of its toxicity. It's a very toxic plant to come in contact with. Pets, children, adults, anyone who comes in contact with it, it is a very highly toxic flower. Contact with this flower will result in minimum to a minimum of drooling, vomiting seizures, and even death, if not treated very well. Listen to this, oleander is reportedly a favorite suicide agent in the country of Sri Lanka, uh, where oleander poisonings exceed 150 per 100,000 people. That's kind of interesting there. And so oleander is a flower, is a very deadly, toxic flower. The one I want to consider most, that I, I think perhaps, in my opinion, Maybe the most toxic uh, and probably the most deadly flower is the flower known as the datura flower. Not to be confused with the doTERRA product. The datura, the datura flower is also nicknamed the devil's trumpets. And there's uh, there's other flowers that are called the angel's trumpets. So they're not to be confused with each other. Now they, it's trumpet-shaped. If you get some pictures to look it up later on, this datura flower is is, is trumpet in shape, but it's a very very deadly plant. Uh, it was historically used in, as witch's brew, if you can believe that, and has been known to be an essential ingredient in potions. It makes one delirious and ultimately leads to one's death every aspect of, the, of this flower is very toxic. Any contact with this flower can kill you. In fact, this flower and the, uh, the, the oleander flower, if they're burned, just breathing the fumes, getting them into your lungs will lead to toxicity and possible death in you. These flowers will kill you if you're not very, very careful. Now now that I'm being said, I'm not turning you into flower haters, okay? And nor do I want you to get rid of the flowers at your home. Just don't eat them, amen? And uh, be careful. You know your flowers very carefully. If you're going Going to smell them make sure you know that they're make sure they're not very toxic flowers but tonight our focus is on a different flower that flower in fact by name is not even found its name is not found in the bible but its name is being used as an acronym to describe a very deadly doctrine it's a very deadly flower it's a flower that kills soul winning. It kills evangelism, it kills missions, and it kills the spiritual vitality of any church. It's a flower that corrupts strong Bible preaching and church growth. It's a a flower that can grow right in the midst of a church unnoticed. It is a flower where the people in a congregation can brush it right against it, and not even realize that they've had contact with it, and have slowly started to ingest its poison. In fact, this flower, in churches that advocate it, you find that the, the essence of their messages are weak after week uh, have content that, that, that kills off a congregation. Churches that emphasize this particular doctrine, you find that they're declining in population size and they're not growing. they are churches that do not see people saved. they are churches that are just dead in terms of their essence. You'll find that this particular flower, its emphasis is not done in a church like this, where there's strong preaching and strong evangelism and strong soul winning. You find that it's advocated at coffee tables, behind the scenes, in hidden corners, in Bible study that the pastor doesn't know about, things going on in people's homes, and uh, people searching the internet where they're getting all of this stuff here. And the flower I'm talking about tonight is the flower that goes by the acronym of TULIP. T-U-L-I-P. Now, tulips are good flowers, but the word tulip defines this particular doctrine. It is the tulip flower. It's the acronym, tulip is the acronym for a deadly false doctrine, which I want you to be familiar with tonight, which we sometimes refer to as Calvinism or hyper-Calvinism. Calvinism Calvinism or hyper-Calvinism. It is known by the flower, which is called tulip. Now, tulip defines, as we'll see tonight, the, the five major points of this. Now, there's some extremists on Calvinism, like John Piper, who has Baptists after his church and he's retired now? But uh, John Piper holds it as many as six or seven tenets of Calvinism, just extremists out there. We're gonna primarily look at what the majority ca- uh, Calvinists talk about there, and that is their five tenets of Calvinism. Notice 2 Thessalonians 2.13, which we just read. These that is one of several verses that the Calvinists use to hang their platform on. So I want you to see tonight, I'm not gonna get into a lot because I want to get right into the crux, mainly the verses that have caused a lot of confusion, and we want to understand this. As we do so tonight, for the sake of those who perhaps this is all new to you, or maybe you've covered in discipleship, and you're kind of just fuzzy-minded about what this all means, we're going to start off by just giving you a basics on the ABCs of this to understand this. So number one, if you're following the outline tonight, number one, I want you to consider with me the meaning, the meaning of TULIP, the meaning of Calvinism, the meaning. What does it mean? Now, the term Calvinism was named after a Protestant uh, reformist by the name of John Calvin. Somewhere along the line, you've heard of John Calvin. John Calvin came out of the Catholic Church. John Calvin was a Protestant. John Calvin was one of the founders of the Presbyterian Church. Now, you're going to find two things. Listen to me tonight. You're going to find that Presbyterianism... And Reformed theology are both one and the same. They're basically siblings, okay? Reformists or Reformed churches, Reformed theology, which you'll find a lot of that up in the upper Michigan area. Reformed theology is a, is a, is a sibling to Presbyterianism. Calvinism was named after John Calvin. John Calvin developed a series of theological um Groundings, if you would, or theological beliefs that are known as Calvin's Institutes. In fact, if if Calvin's Institutes, where I've been in foreign countries, Calvin's Institutes have been translated in many languages, and you'll find that those who adhere to Calvinism and Calvin's Institute, they revere Calvin's Institutes above the Word of God. Now that's already a problem right there, but they revere it above the Word of God. They are very good at quoting what Calvin says, very poor at quoting what the Bible says, or very poor in understanding or interpreting the Word of God. Now, Calvin Developed as we call today Presbyterianism, Calvinism, or Reformed theology. Now, what is what do we mean by Calvinism, Reformed theology? What do we mean by that? Calvinism, Reformed theology hold to a very strong position that the sovereignty of God, which we believe in. There's nothing wrong with the sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of God refers to the fact that God is all in control. He's an all-powerful God. We believe that, amen? We believe in a God who's all-powerful. We believe in who's a God who's sovereign. We believe in a God who's decisive. We believe in a God who overrules things. For instance, the Bible says the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord as the rivers of water, he turns it with to We believe in that, okay? There's nothing wrong with the sovereignty of God. But what Calvinists believe, they believe that God's sovereignty is so powerful that it overrules man's ability to exercise his free will. Now, one of the things we believe as Baptists, we believe in individual soul liberty, okay? That, that's found in your Baptist tenets. If you take the acronym, the acrostic Baptist, Baptists, we find there the letter I refers to individual soul liberty. Okay, now individual soul liberty speaks about you and I are volitional nature. Being volitional nature means that we have a free will. We have the ability to exercise. We can choose to believe or choose not to believe. Okay, now the Calvinists believe that man does not have a free will. They believe that God God's sovereignty overrules and overrides man's free will. They believe that God has predetermined. This is the key thought here. God has predetermined before the beginning of time, God has predetermined who will go to heaven and who will get who, will, who and who will go to hell? Who will go to heaven and who will go to hell? Now that may seem academic to you, but that's a problem there, okay? That is a problem against the very nature of God, okay? That is a problem against the scriptures as far as how God reveals himself. Now, Calvinism holds a position that God is predetermined who goes to heaven and who goes to hell. How many are with me so far? You're confused. Nod your head like this if you're with me tonight, okay? I don't see a lot of heads nodding. I think a lot of heads are just going in circle tonight. Then repeat that tonight. Calvinism. Reformed theology holds to position that God has predetermined through his sovereignty who is already going to go to heaven and who is already going to hell. So let me use an example. If Calvinism was, uh, if hyper-Calvinism was a very strong ten of the church, they would say this: that God already determined all of us here in this room tonight that we were already going to be saved. So it was just a matter of time before we believed and came to know Jesus Christ, our Savior. We had no choice in the matter; we were going to believe anyway. They just believed. That's what they believe, there. Okay. Now, now they have. They make a play on words. They make, in fact they wreak havoc on Bible words such as predestination chosen, and election. You want to write that down. They wreak havoc with the words predestination. Now, the word predestination, predestinate, is in the Bible. But where the word predestined is being used has nothing to do with salvation. It has everything to do with sanctification, ultimately glorification. Okay? So you have to understand the difference between salvation and sanctification. Okay? We're going to give you some definitions in a little bit here. But they wreak havoc on the word predestination. They wreak havoc, as we'll see tonight from 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13, on the words chosen and the words elect. So you have to understand that tonight. I want you to catch us this evening because if you have any questions coming out of this tonight, you want to see us this evening so we can help you through this process here. Okay? Now, let me tell you something else here. You'll find that the large majority of Protestants, a growing number of Southern Baptists, and the old Southern Baptists, men like Jerry Vines who's retired from the pulpit, men like Adrian Rogers who's gone on to be with the Lord, men like that—they are doing their utmost best to try to keep the their convention from going the way. But there's a growing number of Southern Baptists that have gone that have gone Calvinistic. But you'll find that a large number, majority of Protestants, if not majority of not all the Protestants, a growing number of Southern Baptists, the category of Baptists known as Reformed Baptists—they uh, all hold dogmatically to Calvinism and Reformed theology. Okay, so that's why when someone tells you, you're Baptist, you need to do a little bit more homework. You need to ask, what kind of Baptist are you? For instance, there's a church not very far, far from here that will tout themselves that we are independent Baptists. And when I, if somebody tells you about that church, they say, what about this church? I'll tell them, I know about that church. And Number one, they're not independent. Number two, they are not Baptist, okay? And you say, what are they? They're probably more, more in line with reformist theology, even though they'll tell you that they, they sow when they don't sow when if you ask them what they believe and get down to it and, and you, get, you scrutinize through their 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 statement of faith, you'll find out that they are Reformed theology. Now, getting a little bit digging a little bit beneath the surface, who does that include? Well, Presbyterians. All Presbyterian theology is Reformed theology, okay? You say, well, I know somebody. It doesn't matter. If you start talking to them, you'll start getting into the technicalities of it. You'll find out the Reformed theology. Presbyterians, Reformed churches, Bible churches, many Bible churches they have the name Bible in they call themselves Bible churches. Many of them adhere to that type of teaching. Uh, many, if not most, community churches hold to that. Uh, charismatic churches hold to that there 's a large number of them now, even digging beneath the surface, let me, let me throw, throw some names at you because these are, many of them are prominent authors, some are, many are live many are dead. But uh, let me give you some authors who are Calvinistic. Men like R.C. Sproul. Sproul is very touted by many, many out there as in his books. You've got to be very, very careful. R.C. Sproul, he's a Presbyterian. Uh, John MacArthur here in California. Uh, Arthur Pink, who has a number of books. Out. In fact, Arthur Pink has a book entitled The Sovereignty of God. And it's very blasphemous when you get into there. Uh, John Piper, who's been a prominent author. A lot of young guys, a lot of our independent Baptists like reading John Piper. I don't know why. I've, I've read a couple of his books they didn't really do anything for me personally per se maybe because i already knew that the man was calvinistic in his leanings but even in his missiology and his uh his doctrine of missions he you can find there's just strong strong overtones of calvinism in there uh carl henry uh donald barnhouse who donald barnhouse was the pastor i think it's called the 10th presbyterian church in philadelphia there and a very prominent man, and his successor, James Montgomery Boyce, very strongly Calvinistic. Uh, Louis Burkhoff, who's written a number of systematic theology books. Carl Henry, Lorraine Botner, you wanna be very careful, Lorraine Botner. Lorraine Botner's books, in fact, in the 60s and 70s, did much to corrupt many, many men and get them over to that, that, that side of it. William Hendrickson, who has a series of commentaries that I have that, that, that there's some historical things and background and cultural things he has in his books that are very, very good, but he's strongly Calvinist. In fact, you read through you read through William Hendrickson's books, even the Gospel of John, you find even on John three sixteen for those of you students of the word of God, it's amazing how you find the strong overtones on Calvinism there. I'm just letting you know these names. You say, well that doesn't bother me. If you're in a teaching capacity of the church, you're reading any kind of books, you need to know these names. You need to know these authors. You need to know what's going on there, okay? Most of all of these men are, 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 are all of these men I named, they, and there are many more like that jo, uh, there's a man named Platt, David Platt out there that a lot of our young guys are reading. David Platt is a Calvinist, okay? I mean, a number of these guys are strongly Calvinist. And then, not only these men, but I want you to consider this tonight. Most, if not all, prominent seminaries and Bible colleges lean towards and fully embrace Calvinism. And that would include Dallas Theological Seminary. Now I know we have some Sunday morning attendees who are very fond, that just only 10 Sunday morning, they're very fond of Dallas Theological Seminary. Dallas Theological Seminary is, is, is overrun with Calvinists. Okay, I can prove it to you, and I can, I can bring any one of those guys here, and we can engage in conversation, and show you they're, 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 they're just riffed with, with, with that. Master Seminary, founded by John MacArthur, is Calvinistic. Fuller Theological Seminary, which has got a lot of other corruptions in there, is 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 Rift uh, was filled with, with Calvinism. Trinity Seminary up in, up in Illinois. Uh, this most Southern Baptist seminaries have been in there. Bob Jones University, which started off as a strongly evangelistic, fundamentalist type school, has professors and teachers who, are, who, are, who have been known to be Calvinists. Now anyone who's attended these schools, fellowship with these pastors and teachers from these schools are very likely Calvinistic in their theology and their position. Now I'm going somewhere, please don't get bored on me tonight, all right? Now, let me make a statement as I get into this because I'm going to define tulip to you for in just a moment here. We are independent Baptists. And as independent Baptists, we have no affiliation or fellowship with anyone who holds a Calvinistic, hyper-Calvinistic, or Reformed theology position. Amen. Okay? If I'm the only one amen, that's gonna be fine, but we're gonna amen on that tonight. Calvinist theology tonight, we have no fellowship with that. We give no leanings towards those things here, okay? Now, you're gonna find, in fact, most commentaries, most commentaries. Out there today, most, most, most authors that are out there, most of them are very Calvinistic in their leanings. You need to know how to know how to correct, correctly divide the word of truth as you get through some of those things. Now, all, now the word "calvinism," we, we, we basically define it, going back to calvin 's Institutes, from the word "tulip. The word "tulip now tulip is, we know it is a flower, but the word "tulip" by, as, as an acronym. And as an acrostic defines to us or helps us understand what it is. Now, I'm not going to get into a deep theological study with you tonight, but I'm going to give you enough so you can understand what this is all about. So are you ready? We're going to talk about TULIP, and then we're going to get into the hard verses because I need enough time to get into these verses tonight. Number one, I want you to consider the letter T in TULIP. The letter T in TULIP, is we would typically define it as total depravity. Now, depravity, if you're with me in one of our messages I had a few Sunday mornings ago, depravity is a word that we use to define the sinfulness of man. Depravity, if you would, in fact, the word iniquity that's found in the Bible, both Old and New Testament, the word iniquity probably is the word uh, defining sin. The word iniquity probably is the closest to uh, helping us understand the idea of depravity. Okay, Depravity can, can, uh, talks about the unrighteous, wicked sinful condition of man. Now all of us have, are depraved in that sense there. Now sometimes we use the word depraved to talk about someone who's very, very wicked. But listen, the Bible defines, if you go to Jeremiah chapter 17, which is in my devotions right now, was in today, it reminds us the heart is desperately wicked. That defines the depraved nature of man. Now we all, everybody is, from a theological standpoint, Everybody agrees with the idea and the fact that we're all depraved. That we all have a sinful nature. We're all in agreement about that. Amen? We all agree that tonight we have a sinful nature. Okay? All who sin to come short of the glory of God. Now... Where the Calvinists go a step beyond that and take it to extreme, they not only believe in a total depravity, okay? And we believe that all men are sinners, okay? We don't disagree with that. But they go to the extreme and believe in what we hold, holding to what we call a total inability. They go from not just total depravity, but a total inability. Now go with me to Ephesians chapter 2, if you would, please, so you can understand the groundwork from where these come from. Ephesians chapter 2. And I want you to notice verse, verse 1. Now, verse 1, Ephesians 2, verse 1 to 3, talks about our, 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 our sinful nature. It talks about the fact that we are children who are depraved or children of depravity. It talks about we're children of darkness. It talks about children who are disobedient, uh, children of the devil. It's all found there in verses 1 to 3 and where we had our conversation, what we were like in times past. But notice verse 1. You, as he quickened, notice, who were dead in trespasses and sins. Now, we understand. We understand this tonight. Something that's dead is not alive. Something that's dead has ceased to exist. Okay, we understand that. But what they're saying here, we're taking this concept of being spiritually dead. Being spiritually dead means we need to be made alive, okay? But what they're saying is that the sinner is so spiritually dead. He is so spiritually dead that he has no ability to believe. He has no ability to exercise faith, as Ephesians 2.89 speaks of there. They're talking about there the total inability of a sinner to believe on himself. So what they're saying there, as we'll see this evening, they're saying a total inability on the part of the unbeliever to being saved. And that's where they say the sovereignty of God overrules that the person is so dead, they have no capability of believing. And they base their groundwork off of Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, but they have failed to correctly interpret scripture as you read through the rest of, of Ephesians chapter 2, and understanding that there is a choice, there is a free will that we have and our ability to believe that. So tonight, number one, we see that they hold to a position of total inability. But let's go a little bit further to see where they're going with this. Let's look at the letter U. The letter U stands for Unconditional Election. Now, election is referred to choice. But they're saying here, God has made an, uncondi- has made an unconditional election. Now I want you to think of me in the context as we study tonight, total inability, unconditional election, limited opponent, okay, irresistible grace, perseverance, you'll notice in all these things, it's, it's basically saying that God's nature is such that he doesn't give a person any ability or choice to get saved. Now watch this tonight. Unconditional election means, it means basically God has already been determined before the foundation of time who's going to heaven, who's going to hell they made the, he's already made the decision. You have no choice in the matter It basically says there's no decision or exercise of free will on the part of the sinner Now I want to give you two verses tonight I don't know if they're in your notes if they're not I want you to look them up I want to give you two verses tonight that will help you to kind of put a different spin on this in terms of what the word of God says Notice it will be John chapter 5 verse 40 And we're going to look at this a little bit more when we get into the verses But look with me at John chapter 5 verse 40 John chapter 5, verse 40. These are the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. And again, I wish I had time to develop the whole text. But it says this, And ye will not come to me that ye might have life. Now Jesus is talking to unbelieving Jews who would not believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And very bluntly, the Lord Jesus Christ says to them, You will not come to me that you might, believe, that you might have life. And in other words, he's saying you have elected in your heart not to believe. Now, that is totally different from what the Calvinists believe. But let's go a little bit further. Acts chapter 7, verse 51. Stephen is preaching his great sermon in the city of Jerusalem to the Jews. In fact, the chief priests and the other religious leaders are there. As he comes to the close of his message, he drops the hammer down on them. He preaches a great expository message, and he drops the hammer on them, and he says this to them in verse 51. Ye stiff neck, and I'm circumcised in heart and ears, ye do always resist the Holy Ghost. What he's saying to them there is: in your, 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 you have a decision-making capacity, and in that decision-making capacity, you have chosen to resist the convicting power of the Holy Spirit of God. Now, contrary to what the Calvinists believe, man does have a free choice, and man does have a free will, and man is a moral agent who could decide to sin or not to sin, to choose God or not to choose God. So they hold in letter U the the the, the, the concept of unconditional election. Let's go to the letter L. T is total, inability. U is unconditional, election. Listen to L. With the letter L, they hold to a position called limited atonement. Now, limited atonement means Christ only died for those who he's elected to be saved. Now, I don't know about you, but in my definition, that is blasphemy against the nature of God. Okay, Because if you're limiting the blood of Jesus Christ... You're limiting the ability to be saved, and we'll refute all that as we look at these problems, these, these confusing verses to the Calvinists. What we'll see tonight, there's something wrong with that doctrine there, okay? Now it, it, is a, it is a mischaracterization, and I call in my notes a blasphemous mischaracterization of the death of Christ for every sinner. Now I want you to consider some verses with me. Notice John 3 16. For God so loved the world. Now that's all the world. That's all the word. Now, I've debated with Calvinists in English and in foreign languages who said, well, no, that's not referring to all the world. That's referring to those who've been elected. That's not what it says. You, you put things in that. Add nothing to the word of God. Amen? Yeah. The world means world, okay? It says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And what you notice in the next phrase, that who what? Well, whosoever. That's everybody. That's all. Amen? I mean, whosoever will is, is right in the Bible there. So the whosoever believe that's open to anybody. And listen, isn't it interesting by the, the great wisdom of the Holy Spirit as he's crafting and weaving the inspiration of the Gospel of John, how he starts off in the very beginning of the Gospel of John, of introducing John three sixteen, and as we weave our way all the way to chapter 21 of John, we find that the Jews are constantly confronted with the decision they've got to make. It is not the sovereignty of God overruling them and saying, well, you're going to be saved, you're not. To be saved. That's not what it is there. God gives everyone a chance. In fact, Jesus gave, if you study the Gospels very closely, he gave those Pharisees, those religious leaders of all people, and those hard-necked Jews, he gave them multiple opportunities to believe on it, but they chose not to. Notice, if you would, Hebrews 2.9. But we see Jesus, who is made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor. Notice this, that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for who? Every man. There's no limited atonement. That is a Bible heresy. That is a false doctrine. That is not scriptural, okay? Now they may today kinda flower it up and put different words around it, but when you get down, you have to ask yourself the question, are they, are they referring to an atonement that limits God's saving ability on certain people, okay? Now notice something else, 1 John 2, 2. And he's the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of who? The whole world. There's no limited atonement there. And there are many more verses that we can look at there. There's no limited atonement there, okay? Well, let's go a little bit further. T is total inability. U is unconditional election. L is limited atonement. I need to move very quickly. I is irresistible grace. Irresistible grace means that the person that God has predisposed that's going to heaven cannot resist the grace of God. Because God is already predetermined He's going to be saved. You cannot resist the grace of God. Now, that's not what the scriptures teach. Okay? And I'm not, I'm not, not being, you know, I'm not saying that God's grace is not powerful, but God gives every man a choice. Amen. Herod Agrippa was presented the salvation opportunity, and uh, he told Paul, he told Paul, he says, uh, almost i persuadest persuade this me. Almost. Okay? Almost means he wasn't ready to get saved. In fact, we don't have any record that he got saved. All right? Now, watch this. Um, Irresistible grace is saying if you're one of the elect, you cannot turn down the grace of God. Now, the, everything they use for that is very shaky, and we're going to come back to it in a minute here as we get to some of the problem verses here in a minute. But notice the letter P. This gets very interesting. Okay, letter T, total inability, letter U, unconditional election. Letter L limited atonement. Letter I, irresistible grace. Irresistible grace means that that God in his sovereignty is so powerful that the sinner cannot and will not refuse the grace of God. But notice letter P. This is where we get into this. And you'll find the Calvinists and the Protestants get into this, they get into this question: Are you Calvinist or are you Armenian? Okay? And uh, one holds to a eternal security of the believer, and the other one believes that you gotta keep on, you gotta keep that if you backslide, you can lose your salvation, okay? So notice letter P is the perseverance of the sin now I'm going to read to you what I wrote down in my notes so I I don't confuse you tonight this is saying in perseverance of the saints that in order to be saved you must persevere or live a sanctified life to give evidence that you're saved so in other words if you backslide for a long period of time a Calvinist will say well he may not be saved so where does backsliding come in? Where does restoration come in? They're saying that you've got to, if you would, I'm not going to say that they're working for your salvation, but if you start reading through Calvin's theology there, it almost makes you believe that all of a sudden they shifted here and lead you to believe in a works-based salvation. It is a shaky acceptance of the fact that once you are saved, you're always saved. Calvinists accept the fact that salvation is all of God, but they insert into the, in their theology, they insert into this that a saved person must persevere until until the end, or it is likely that person was never saved. Now, a lot of that they get from an incorrect interpretation of Matthew 24, 13, and 1 John 3, verses 7 to 9. Now, I don't have time to develop it tonight. I might do that in a study. I might preach to a little bit through 1 John, maybe for a few weeks uh, after we end this series, just to kind of give clarity to that. But if you're not very careful, if you read 1 John chapter 3, verses 7 to 9, if you don't read it very carefully, you rightly discern, the, well, rightly divide the word of truth, you're going to be led to believe, oh, then that, that, that's talking about perseverance of saints, and I could lose myself because if I'm not doing this, I'll lose my salvation. That that that, that you got to read the whole context to understand what he means by living a righteous life. What it means that you do not commit sin and all these kind of nature. There, we're not we're, when we get saved, we're not sinless by any means. We're not sinless until we, we reach that state of glorification, and that's when we go to heaven. Amen. I mean, we have to understand we are in the process of sanctification right now, and I'll clarify that with you a little bit more tonight as we get to the verses. So, number one, we see the meaning. Calvinism just basically means this: that God is they have they they, they, they in their definition that God is predetermined. Who will go to heaven? Who goes to hell? See, so God's already made that decision. So it doesn't matter. And That's why Calvinism, Calvinists are not very strong evangelistically because they basically, well, that person's going to get saved anyway. Why do I need to evangelize here? okay? But they, they hold that position, and they, they further that through their, their teachings of total inability, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and the perseverance of the saints. So we see the meaning. Now let's get a little bit more deeper tonight. Let's get into some practical application. Notice number two, the misinterpretation. We've got to, we've got to get into this real quick. Quickly here tonight. Now there's many passages of scripture i like to go into. We don't have time tonight, and it'll be too overwhelming. But I'm going to cover about four, four passages of scripture I want you to look at tonight. And please, if you have questions tonight, I want you to come see me. You come see Brother Justin. Come see Brother AJ. Come see Brother Irwin. We're more than glad to help you through that process there tonight. Because we want you to be very clear about this. But please do not leave tonight confused. Please do not leave tonight thinking, well, this does not apply to me. I'm telling you these things tonight for the protection of our church. And not only for the protection of our church, but for the protection of your life spiritually. You'll see that in my closing tonight. So notice, okay, I want to start off as we talk about interpretation. First of all, Scripture must always be interpreted based upon its setting and its context. Always interpret Scripture according to the context. Now, a lot of times, you even have to go back a chapter or two and come forward to understand the context. Especially as you read the Gospels. Especially as you try to correctly interpret the Epistles. You need to understand the context. What's going on here, okay? What's the setting? What's the context, okay? Number two, a major rule in Bible interpretation is never to interpret one verse outside of the passage context. Never interpret, take one verse and draw an interpretation outside of its context. Now, there might be an application that you can use, that's fine. But never interpret it outside of its context, okay? Never interpret it out of the doctrinal context. You might have a verse that has something there, but we've got to look at the doctrine itself all through Scripture. How is the doctrinal context unveil itself, and we have to be sure that we don't interpret outside of its doctrinal context, its passage context, and the true biblical meaning there, okay? Now thirdly, I want you to understand this and write this out if it's not in your notes. The word of God is infallible and the word of God is without error. God's word can be trusted, okay? So you have to understand God's word can be trusted. Don't let a Calvinist or someone who misinterprets scripture take a verse and throw you for a loop and then you think, well, I wonder if I can trust God's word. Let me me affirm to you tonight. God's word can be trusted. Every word of God is pure, okay? The word of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. Okay, so we can trust that. Now, now let me make some other statements. Then. then we're going to look at these verses. Books written about the Bible are not the Bible. We can have a Bible Institute here, and I've got four very good men here, or brother Dana. five very good men who know their Bibles. And we can teach you the Word of God without having the accompanying books, because the Bible will interpret itself. But books written about the Bible are not the Bible. You need to understand that. Secondly, books eventually, write this down, books eventually are the opinions and commentaries of man. So if they're they're the opinions and commentaries of man, there's some subjectivity that is in that, not necessarily objectivity in that. Do you understand what I'm saying tonight? okay you're getting you're getting persuaded by someone's opinion you got to be very careful that's why i very some of you like to read books and you say well can i get a book on the matter What you and you know I, I i said this in a previous message someone came to our church recently and they said well they have difficulty interpreting and understanding a king james version bible and they wanted an niv and all these other versions there to help them with that and i said they said it's okay that that i use other than a king james version Bible." well they're new to the church there and you know i, I don't want to scare the person away and stuff like that i said listen why don't you let us help you grow in grace and, and maybe you you've just say, I don't want to be critical of church you've been to, but probably never, nobody ever told you, taught you how to read the Bible. Amen? And so, would you spend some time here? And, and the men here will teach you how to read the Bible and study it, and we'll help you get around it. You just need to get a basic start starting point and we'll help you with that. Well, they didn't take that very well. And after they came to two services, they decided they didn't want to come back anymore. And, you know, and I feel bad for that situation because the person will be in a perpetual state of confusion until, unless they get that, that idea right. Listen, you've got to humble yourself when you come to church and learn the Word of God. You've got to humble yourself and say, listen, I don't know everything. The preacher doesn't know everything, but he knows enough to teach you the Word of God, not to confuse you that. And so you have to understand this evening, you've got to get under the submission of the Word of God. Now listen to this tonight. False doctrines, false doctrines and heresies are always an emanation of a man's wrong belief. They're always an emanation of a man's wrong belief and conclusion. That's what Calvin is a game of. Remember, Calvin came out of the Catholic Church. He's coming out and realizing salvation is by grace through faith in Christ alone, just as Martin Luther did, but he didn't. He didn't come completely away from things, and he still had a lot of previous theological teachings in his mind that kind of influenced his thinking there, and he went off and wrote a lot of things. If you study Calvin's Institute, it's just, it'll poison you. It's a deadly flower. It'll poison you. And you'll read that, and you'll become like a lot of people who are ungrounded in the Word of God, they'll read that and they'll revere Calvin's institutes above the very Word of God itself there, okay? Now listen tonight. Listen tonight. Calvinism is not a Bible doctrine. Whatever they tell you, it is not a Cal- Bible doctrine. Those five tenets I gave you, and if you want to even go John Piper's round and add two more to that, none of that are Bible doctrines. They are perversions of Bible doctrines, they are twisting of Bible doctrine. They are misinterpretation of Bible doctrine, okay? There are man-made beliefs derived from incorrect Bible interpretation. So notice with me tonight four, maybe five, verses of Scripture this evening. And I want you to turn to them. Go with me, first of all, to Matthew chapter 22. Now, you may have notes on this. I want you to look at the passages with me. Don't look at your notes. The notes are not inspired. The Bible is inspired, amen? Matthew 22. We're going to read a verse. Then I'm going to give you a summary of the passage because we don't have a lot of time. Matthew 22, would you notice verse 14? Verse 14 says, For many are called, but few are chosen. Wow. Man, if I just took that verse right there, I'm a Calvinist. I'm a tulip man. I'm not a tulip man. I'm for the rose of Sharon and the lily of the valley. Amen? Okay? Just to correct things on that tonight, all right? But if you take that verse by itself, that's bad Bible interpretation. What's the context there? Well, let's go to verse 1. The context here in verses 1 to 14 is a parable. It's a parable about the great wedding banquet, not the marriage supper of the Lamb. It starts off, he said, The kingdom of heaven is likened to a certain king which made a marriage for his son. Now, in this wedding... The kingdom of heaven. We start by understanding it's about the kingdom of heaven. A big banquet in heaven. The son is Jesus. The king is God our father. And in this banquet, a large invitation is made. In verse four, he says, uh, verse three, he sent forth his servants to call them that were bidding to the wedding. Now, if you understand some tonight, um, banquets in those days, Eastern banquets, weddings. Invitations were sent way in advance. People were asked to come. And typically, if you lived in a province, or let's not province, but perhaps in a certain village, almost everybody in the village would be, be invited to come. Some of you from the old country. Remember, if you grew up in the old country, remember your, your, your particular town that you grew up in, that, uh, that people, everybody in the town would come. Even if you weren't close to them, it was just proper respect that everyone was invited. But what you notice, verse 3, okay? The servants were to call them that were bidden to the wedding. Now they'd already been given the invitation. And he says here, they would not come. That was a choice. Let me say it again. That was a choice. Okay? Now, so he sent forth more servants. He says, Tell them which are bidden. My dinner's ready. I prepared my dinner. My ox and my fatlings are killed. I mean, he had prime rib, he had the trimmings, listen, he had a feaster. Amen. He said, All things are ready. Come unto the marriage. And the Bible says, verse 5, now notice the choice, the decision making. They made light of it and went their ways. They did all their own things. And then he said, some of them, in verse 6, took his servants and treated them spitefully and they killed them. Now what's that telling us there? Why did they, why did they choose not to come? They were spiteful to the message. They were spiteful to the invitation. They were spiteful to the cause. That was a choice. You choose to love. You choose to hate. You choose to accept. You choose to reject. Say amen if you're with me tonight, okay? You choose to accept or reject, okay? Now notice this here, okay? We'll go on. So he says, go out. And the king was very angry in verse, verse 7. In fact, he was filled with wrath. And he destroyed those murders and burned up their cities. Then in verse 8, he extends an invitation again. Now, bear in mind, this is, this is Matthew, and he's talking about the Jews. Because the Jews... Uh, God, that they were his chosen people. And he's talking about the whole Jewish nation. He's saying, listen, uh, I want you to come. And, uh, but they rejected him. And so his servants, he's talking about they're the prophets of God that were sent out. And he, some of those prophets were slain. And many of the prophets were rejected. And so now he talks about he sent, he sent out, he says, uh, he said, I'm going to send them, but I'm still not done yet. So he, he extends the message out to them. He says, he says, the wedding is ready, but they which were bidden were not worthy. So he's noticed verse 9. Now notice how extensive the message is. Okay? This is where the church comes into play going to the highways and hedges. Go everywhere. And as we'll see in Acts chapter 13, that means unto the ends of the earth. Go to the highways and hedges. He says, go, he says, go wherever you can find people. That's what he's talking about there, amen? He's saying, go where you can find people. Go to the highways and hedges, he says there. And as many as ye shall find. Now, the gospel's not limited atonement there. As many as ye shall find. Bid them to the marriage. So the servants went and gathered together all as many as they found, both bad and good. It was indiscriminate in their search. And the wedding was furnished with guests. Now watch what happens here. At Eastern weddings, especially in a wedding like this, because the original guest list, these were people that rejected coming. So now they're telling people who didn't have advance notice to prepare. They're right there on the spot spontaneously, hey, my master's having a wedding banquet, you're invited to come. Well imagine you're in your grungies, okay? Imagine you're grungies, and you have uh, you've not you've not cleaned up for a little while there, and you don't have you don't have appropriate attire. Wedding hosts, especially for a big banquet, would provide wedding attire for their guests. As part of the entry requirement, you had to put on that wedding attire, okay? You put on the wedding attire to enter in. You'd come appropriately. You came under the terms of the wedding host, okay? Now watch where I'm going with this, okay? So we, we, we find this invitation is given, and the king comes out to see his guests in verse 11, and he saw there a man which had not on a wedding garment. Now this man who didn't have a wedding garment, he came in his grungies. He was offered a wedding garment. He refused it. The others had the wedding garment. They came on their terms. Do you understand tonight? You read the book of Isaiah. When we get saved, God covers us with robes of righteousness. Amen. But before we get saved... The Bible says all of us are like an unclean rag. All of our righteousness are like an unclean rag. We're clothed in filthiness and unrighteousness. So we cannot enter We cannot enter into heaven with filthy rags and filthy unrighteousness. We cannot enter to heaven on our own terms. We cannot come to the presence of God our, under our own terms. We must be clothed with His robes of righteousness. That is the grace of God. That is the gift of God. That is the entry requirement. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is not of works, lest any man should boast. And so this man came... He had a choice, but he chose not to put on a wedding garment. Look at the question in verse 12. Friend, how camest thou in hither not having a wedding garment? And the Bible says he was speechless. That man was not ignorant. He knew he was supposed to wear a wedding garment. He knew the custom. He knew the entry requirements. He knew he he was offered a wedding garment. He refused it. He was speechless. And so Jesus gets down at the end here. He says, "Bind him hand and foot... Cast him to outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This man was never allowed to come into the presence. In fact, the, the picture there is this man being cast into hell, weeping and gnashing of teeth and outer garments. Would you notice verse 14 now? Many are called, but few are chosen. Now who is, who, What does it mean to be chosen? What does it mean to be chosen in this context here? Well, let me give you some thoughts here, okay? Let me give you some understanding here. Um, the word chosen here, first of all, is the same word we get our word elect from. It's used, I think, 47 times in the New Testament. Same word. So when I give you the definition here, it applies the same, okay? Now, I want you to understand, as we read these verses, verses 1 to 14, two words I'm going to give you tonight, I want you to understand. There's a difference between possession and position. Do you understand what I'm saying? Say, nod your head. There's a difference between possession and position. Possession is an acquisition. Position, you cannot have a position without first having a possession. Possession is salvation. Possession is salvation. I accept Jesus Christ by faith. That's my possession. But in my possession... He gives me a position... I have a standing in Jesus Christ. That's why Ephesians chapter one is a beautiful chapter I'm talking about our spiritual blessings in high places in Christ Jesus, okay? So we, we look at that tonight and our position in Jesus Christ is we are chosen. We have entered into that which is you know you're chosen. When he's talking about chosen, he's not talking about choosing to salvation. He's talking about your position in Jesus Christ. He's talking about your sanctification. Many are called, but only few are chosen. In other words, there are many who... Who accepted that wedding garment and they stayed in that banquet, they stayed in the presence of the king. But that one man who never had a possession, because he did take the wedding garments, he never had a position. You with me? Let's get a little further on this, okay? Being chosen means this man was not sincere. He never had a, a possession. And so he could not attain the position of being called chosen. The word chosen, the word elect, is always used in reference to saved people. It's never used in reference to lost people. Write that down. It's never used in reference to lost people. It's always used, when you study your Bible carefully, it's always used in reference to saved people. People who are in the family of God, okay? Let's get a little bit further. Go with me to John chapter 6. This is, a, this is, a, this is, a, this is one that the Calvinists will always jump on. This one, the next two. John chapter 6, verse 44. John chapter six, verse 44. Say amen of you there. Okay, listen to the verse. No man can come to me except the Father which has sent me draw him. And I will raise him up at the last day. Now, just like the previous verse we looked at, John six, verse 44 is used by Calvinism to substantiate their position on unconditional election. Unconditional election, as I said earlier, if you came in late, means God is, they have decided that God's sovereignty is so, is so powerful, man has no free choice. To matter, God has already predetermined who's going to go to heaven and who's going to go to hell. God's made that choice. These, the, those who, He says, you, you know, just, I've decided ahead of time, this person's going to go to heaven, this person's going to go to hell, okay? Well, that refutes everything about God's nature. But notice verse 44. They look at verse 44, they say, well, see, it says right there, except the Father which has set me drawn. But, but look at the context here, okay? First of all, the word draw, uh, the way they define the word draw, and you'll find this prominent in John MacArthur's commentaries. The word, draw, the word draw means literally a very strong pulling by force, and it does mean that in some context there, okay? It means to be pulled away or dragged by force, John MacArthur refers to this as a magnetic pull. You know how a magnet works when, when, when uh, certain, certain types of iron and things like that are attracted to the, and to the iron. It, just, it cannot resist itself, okay? So they use this verse to substantiate unconditional election and irresistible grace here. But that's not the context here, okay? Let's go back to the context. The context in John chapter, all of John chapter 6 is faith in Jesus Christ. The context in John chapter 6 is we get to about, um, I guess about verse 30 here or so. Yeah, about verse 30. Uh, probably, probably going back a little bit further than that. Going back probably to verse um, 22, the context there is Jesus Christ is the bread of life. Fresh in the minds of those people there was the feeding of the multitudes. I mean, it was an awesome miracle, right? It was an awesome miracle. And uh, the people continued to follow him because they were amazed how he took uh, those little fragments of, 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 of barley loaves and the little fragments of anchovy fishes and they multiplied before the very eyes of people. They were, they, were, they were just mesmerized by this great miracle and how thousands and thousands of people were fed. And then on top of that, there were 12 uh, basically laundry baskets full of the fragments that were taken back. So I want you to notice as he's talking about bread of life, if you read the context very carefully, he's talking about, about receiving him as Savior, believing on Jesus Christ. So notice, again, the context here is about believing. Let's, let's go a little bit further. And look, notice verse 29. Let's look at some verses that kind of help lead, lead, lead the pathway here. Jesus said in verse 29... Jesus answered unto them, This is the work of God, that ye believe on him who is sent. Now believing, the mechanism of believing is a choice on someone's part. So he's already talking here and this throughout this whole chapter about believing on him. So verse 29 he talks about believing on him in faith. Verse thirty-five And Jesus said unto them, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. Look at the phrases there. He that cometh to me, he that believeth on me. That's a free choice. That is the free will agency of man of choosing to come to Him, and then again, verses thirty-nine to forty, verses thirty-nine to forty, and this is the Father will, the Father's will, which has sent me. That of all, notice the word all, all which is given me. Which who is all these given Him? Everyone. All that God has given is everyone. That all which God has given, him, I should lose nothing. However, he says, and should raise it up again at the last day. But notice this. And this is the will of him that sent me. That everyone which seeth the Son and believeth on him may have everlasting life. And I will raise him at the last day. Now notice this. Jesus is helping us understand something there. The all here. Now he's becoming very specific. The all are those who made that, that, that their personal election, not an election of God, but their personal election, that they should believe him. Let me see this about God's election. God's not willing that any should perish. But that all should come to repentance. Second first John 1 uh, Timothy 2:4, God will have all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of truth. Second Peter 3:9, uh, you know, God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God's will is that all men be saved. But when we boil it down a little bit more, God's will, God's will goes beyond that. God's will says here, if you look at verse 40, he, he says, And this is the will of him that sent me, that everyone which sees the Son and believeth on him may have everlasting life. He says to everyone that believes on him, God's will is that you're going to be saved. God has already predetermined that if you believe on Jesus Christ, you can be saved. And he talks about raising him up. Now, when Jesus talked about the resurrection. That's the other doctrine being mentioned here in John chapter six. The resurrection, he's talking about the resurrection of the believer later on in the future there. He's talking about the, our resurrection and he, and he talks about that much here in chapter five and chapter six here. Now we go a little bit further. We see here Jesus talking about believing on him. But let's go a little bit further here. True faith is believing than seeing. Jesus is addressing a flaw in the lives of these Jews and a flaw we have in our lives too. A lot of us cannot believe unless we first see. We find consistently, they saw, then they believed. But true faith believes, then sees. It's being able to see him who is invisible, okay? So we get down a bit further. Jesus is talking here, these verses I led up to, up to verse 40, about believing on him. He talks about, about about, about who he is. Notice verse 41 and 42. We see something very interesting about the Jews, their reception to this. The reception of the Jews towards this was, that was adversarial. They, they did not receive very well what he said. In fact, they rejected what he said. Now they've gone from seeing and believing to, to seeing and rejecting. Notice verse 41. Then the Jews then murmured at him because he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. Now he just crossed the line with them. Because in their mind, the, they're, they're thinking manna, They're thinking, Moses, Jesus has elevated himself above Moses. Well, of course he can. He is above Moses. He made Moses. Amen? You know He's the God of Moses. So they're mad at that. They're mad at the fact that he's just violated their tradition about the manna from heaven. But the manna seized when they went into the promised land. Jesus is the true manna. Jesus is the bread of life. He's the bread. When you eat of him, you'll never hunger again, he said. And he said, so they were murmuring. They were murmuring themselves. They were complaining. And they said, in verse 42, is not this Jesus the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we no. Well, they rejected the virgin birth. They rejected the fact when, by rejecting the virgin birth, by that statement, they did not accept him as being uh, having a sinless life. They said that he was a sinner by that statement. How is it then that that he saith I came down from heaven? Jesus therefore answered and said unto them, Murmur not among yourselves. Now, what are we talking about there? These men had a choice to believe on Jesus. He's talking about put, believing him and, and putting their faith in. Him. They have just turned him away. They've rejected him there. Now we get down to verse forty-four. We get down a little bit further. He's talking about them, about believing on him. And he said in verse 44, no man can come to me except the Father which has set me, Drawn. me. Now what does he mean by that? Well, let's keep reading on. Remember the context here, he's talking about believers now. Verse 44, not unbelievers, believers. Notice verse 45. Verse 44 leads into verse 45. Context now. It is written in the prophets, and they shall be all taught of God. Now, every sinner gets an opportunity to respond. Every sin, they, listen, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth his handiwork, okay? It says here, and they shall all be taught of God. He's referring here from the book of Isaiah chapter 54. Every man, therefore, that has heard and has learned of the Father... Cometh unto me. Now Jesus is giving, giving, he's giving commentary and clarification on what he's talking about in verse forty-four. Let me read verse forty-five again. He says, "Every man, therefore, that has heard and has learned of the Father, cometh unto me." Now, what does he mean by that? Okay. Well, I I I want you to think about me for just a minute. What he's saying here, okay? To understand verse forty-four. You have to read in context verses 45, 46, and 47 because he talks about believing again. Verse 47, he says, he that believeth on the everlasting But notice here, he tells us how this drawing occurs. In verse 45, he defines for us how God the Father draws us. Notice what he says here. You must hear, you must come, and you must believe. Do you see that? Verse 45, it is written the prophets, and they shall all be taught of God. Everyone gets the gospel. Everyone can believe, okay? But he says, And every man, therefore, that has heard and has learned of the Father cometh unto me. So in other words, he says, You must hear. Faith comes by hearing. Hearing by the word of God. You must hear. Then as you hear, you come to God, and then you believe on Jesus Christ as your Savior. So what does the drawing mean there? He's defining first in verse 45 and verse 47, the the Father drawing the person. The drawing is the convicting power of the Holy Spirit, Resulting in the inner conviction of the sinner to believe and be saved, okay? Don't overlook the words all and believe throughout this whole passage of scripture, okay? He's saying here, not any man, in verse 46, not that any man has seen the Father save he which is of God has seen the Father. Verily, verily, or truly, truly, or truthfully I say unto you, he that believeth on me hath everlasting life. How do you get that place? Well, the Father does the drawing. You must hear, you must come, and you must believe. Say that with me tonight. You must hear, You must come and you must believe. That's the drawing of the Father there. Everything interpreted within the context of the scripture. You cannot isolate John 6, 44 and say, well, there it teaches unconditional election." No, it does not. He's talking about believers. How a believer, how a person, how a person comes to God. He says, "No man." He says in verse forty-four, "No man can come to me except the Father which has sent me. Draw him, and I will raise him up the last day." Well, the raise up the last day. He's talking about those who, who are going to be part of the resurrection of, of, of the resurrection unto eternal life. He's talking about that—the the resurrection of the body of the believer. There, he's talking about believers there and that. Now, keep in context. This is a continuation from John chapter five. Look at John chapter five, verses thirty-nine to forty. Search the scriptures for in them ye think that you have eternal life and there they would testify. Well, didn't he just say in verse chapter six, verse, verse 45, that they shall all be taught of God and every man that has heard and has learned me. Well, that's searching the scriptures. You're going to learn the scriptures. You get into the word. Hey, how did Martin Luther get enlightened to get saved? He read the scriptures. He came to the word of God. How do sinners get saved? They read the word of God and they get saved. They, re- they read that there. So search the scripture for in them you think you have eternal life and there they which testify me. And he said in verse 40, and ye will not come to me that ye might have life. Now bear in mind everything in the context here. These Jews had just seen these miracles, but they would not believe. When Jesus stepped, stepped out and said, I'm the bread of life, they rejected the fact, his deity. They rejected that he's the Son of God. They rejected that he was sinless. They rejected that he could give them everlasting life. They rejected that he could satisfy their spiritual desires if they took him. But he was telling them to, to he wasn't telling them to cannibalize him. He wasn't telling them that they were to eat his flesh literally or drink his blood literally. He's talking about you've got to take all of Jesus by faith. Uh, that's the, that's a, an incorrect interpretation is that, 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 that you know, when you take Jesus, that you've got to keep taking him over and over again. No, he's saying there that you understand that you're taking all of Jesus by faith. You're taking all the fact that he died completely for your sins and rose again from the dead. But look at another one real quickly with me. Actually, we'll, we'll, go, to, we'll go to one more, then, then we'll have to stop here tonight. Look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Our verse tonight. Acts 13, I'll come back to another time, but go back to 2 Thessalonians 2. Now, here, here in 2 Thessalonians 2, our key, key text tonight, in verse 13, this is that verse 13, by, taken by itself, the Calvinists use this to support their position of irresistible grace and unconditional election. And they, they misinterpret the phrase in verse 13 God has from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification, spirit of belief of the truth. I remember years ago, a student, a college student that I worked with, who went down to Southern California, and he came under influence on a campus Bible study with John MacArthur's group from from his Grace Community Church. They have a large, sprawling um, uh, college ministry on those Southern California campuses. This happened to be at UCLA, Student came back home for the uh, winter season or spring season, something like that. I went up and talked to him a little bit there. And and I could tell there was an edge about him that you could tell he'd been away for a little while. He had an edge about it. He didn't all of a sudden from being very friendly with him, he was very adversarial to me. And uh, he, he, he came up to me and he said, well, and he was bottling up, bottling up. And by the time before he left to go back to school, he said, I got to talk to you, Brother Fogg. He says, basically, he says, I got some problems with your preaching. I said, whoa, I said, what's, what's going on here? Now, again, I wasn't pastor or anything like that time. And he said, I got a problem with your preaching. He says, uh, he said, first of all, I, I just want you to know I, I, I go to John MacArthur Church. Well, the red flags went up when he said that. And he said, and I said, so let me, let me guess before you come out, you're going to tell me that you're, you, you hold to all of his Calvinistic teaching. And we went through this, and this is one of the verses, one of many verses. This one, Acts 13, 48, John 6, These are all verses that he got indoctrinated with that he didn't under. And I tried to get a bi- correct Bible interpretation. He didn't want to get into that and basically held his position. He says, I'm against everything you believe me hold to. because He says, I don't believe that's, that's correct Bible teaching. Well, this is what they're doing here. Watch what goes on here. If you take that phrase just like that, without understanding the Word of God, God has cho- from the beginning chosen you to salvation, to sanctification of the Spirit, and believe the truth. You might believe in unconditional election. Notice first, okay, the words, the word beginning, be- beginning, starting when, what beginning? You have to ask that question. Secondly, uh, the, the, the phrase chosen salvation, what's it all about there? Okay, well, let's go back to context. Okay, remember context. All right, so what's he talking about here? Gleaning up to verse thirteen. What is he talking about there? We've had two messages about that. He's talking about end times. He's talking about prophecy. Verses, verses 4 to 12. He's talking about, first of all, the rapture is going to occur. And people who've heard the gospel, the Holy Spirit is actively at work right now. We're in the age of grace. The Holy Spirit's restraining power will be removed at the rapture. Unbelievers who heard the gospel but refuse to get saved. Remember the term refuse. Will believe a lie, a spirit of delusion that God will allow in the world. It is now the seven-year tribulation. Those same unbelievers who were here before we get raptured will go into the seven-year tribulation and will believe a lie. So notice here, he talks about these people during the tribulation. Will they get saved in the tribulation? Now watch what happens here, okay? Let's go down. In verse 10, to 13, verse 10 to 12, we see these, this same group of sinners, these unbelievers, who had a choice. And he references their choice of not believing. So always remember, as you study these paths of scripture, what was going on? What's happening with the, the, the concept of believing and were there people that did not believe? Notice verse 10. And with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish, because they received not the love, of the truth that they might be saved. They had a choice in the matter. They chose not to receive it. They chose not to receive Jesus Christ. That's what he's talking about there in verse 10. In their free will, they in verse 10, they received not the love, of the truth. The love of Christ, the grace of God was given to them. They they receive not the love, the truth, that they might be saved. They said, I don't want it. Well, we get a little bit further down. And verse 11 says, and for this cause, God shall send them strong delusion that they should believe a lie. Now they're in the tribulation period. Verse 10, pre-tribulation, they, did not, they didn't want to get saved. Verse, verse, verse 11, we get to verse 11 here, and the strong delusion. They still won't believe they're going to believe the lie. He says that they all might be damned who believe not the truth. Now believing not the truth goes back to before the rapture where they chose not to be saved. Now look at the context here. The context we get in verse 13 is about unbelievers before and in the tribulation period who believe not the truth. Now Paul transitions his thought in verse 13 back to the Thessalonians. He's not talking about unsaved believers in the tribulation. He's going back to this church he's writing to. A church that he loves. A church that he started. A church that he planted. A church that he preached the gospel to. A church that had an evangelistic seal. And he's thanking God, notice in verse 13, that they were saved. Aren't you glad you're saved tonight? Amen? Amen. But he says, but we, who's we? Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke, that, that missionary team. But we are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren beloved of the Lord. Now they too were loved of God. Both groups of sinners were loved by God. But he says, but we are bound to give thanks. Do you know what he's thanking God for? He was thanking God that they obeyed the truth. And he was thanking God that they they, they acted upon salvation. And Paul references, just like Jesus did in John chapter 3, about the agents involved in sal- salvation. What are the agents involved in salvation? Look at verse 13. The agents involved in salvation are the, sanct- are, are the sanctification of the spirit and belief of the truth. And what are those two things there sanctification of spirit and 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 uh, and he's he's talking about here the the belief of the truth what's he talking about there he's talking about jesus said uh, except a man be born of water and of the spirit he's talking about titus 3 5 the regenerating of the holy spirit of god he's talking about there there's the working of the word of god the truth there's the working of the Holy Spirit of God with the word of God creating conviction. He reproves us up through his word. The working together of the Spirit and the word of God produces the new birth. It's the regenerating of the Holy Spirit and the life of a believer, Titus 3.5. So he's saying here, we're bound to give thanks because from the beginning, the beginning of what? The beginning is when the gospels first started being preached there at Thessalonica. That's what he's saying. not talking about the beginning of time he's talking about when he went there to if you study very carefully the context again, the very word begin, beginning is not the typical word that says in the beginning like Genesis 1-1 that's not the word, the word meaning there it's a different word it's a word talking about at the point of time when the gospel came to Thessalonica he says we, we, we're bound to give thanks to God always for you brethren beloved of the Lord because God has from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of spirit and believe the truth now the chosen to salvation is not saying that God chose to put them in Christ because what well, we're. we're, we're any without any choice on their part the choosing here is talking about their position they're chosen to salvation. Why? Because he's thanking God they were saved. These people are saved, okay? They already had the possession. They possessed Jesus Christ. Now they're in position. Well, how do you go for that conclusion, Pastor Fogg? Look at verse 14. Don't interpret scripture with one verse alone. He says, whereunto, he says, "You." there is the sanctification of the spirit and the belief of the truth. Whereunto, he called you. And the word calling is synonymous with the word choosing. Whereunto, he called you by our gospel to the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. What's Paul talking about there? Salvation is not just unlimited to your belief in Jesus Christ. It's talking about the glory of salvation is all that pertains to salvation. The spiritual blessings of Christ Jesus. Listen, we go from salvation to sanctification to glorification. Salvation. We are, we, we are justified by faith in Jesus Christ. We are, we are, we are uh, no longer under the penalty of sin, okay? Then we go into sanctification. That's what we are now. Our sanctification is our position in Jesus Christ. Chosen to salvation. Through sanctification of the Spirit, sanctification of the, uh, of the Spirit, and believe the truth results in the fact that God. God, God wants us looking forward to that future day, to the obtaining of the glory we have in Jesus Christ. What's he saying there? Don't stop at salvation. Live for Jesus Christ. Look forward to that future reward. Look forward to the fact that you're going to take this mortal, it's going to become immortal. This corrupt will become incorruptible. What does that all mean? It means, listen, salvation is wonderful. You don't stop just right now. It's the fact that I'll spend all of eternity with Jesus Christ. It's the fact that I'll be changed into his image. It's the fact that I'll have a glorified body. It's the fact that, that I no longer will sin reign the my life. No longer am I under the penalty of sin, the power of sin, or the presence of sin. Glory to God. The means of salvation is chosen to salvation through sanctification of spirit belief of the truth. Salvation is about our choice. You have to choose to be saved. God's already made the choice. He wants everyone to be saved. Amen? Okay. It's your choice. Salvation is our choice, but sanctification is our change. Sanctification is our change. He has chosen you through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth, whereunto he has called you by our gospel to the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is saying, don't get your eyes, because remember, he's been talking about the future now. Remember, he's been talking about the future in the previous verses. Don't, don't get your eyes right here on this world. This world is not my home. I'm just a passing through, Amen. Get your eyes on the glory. Get your eyes on Jesus. Get your eyes on, the, on, that, on that future reward. Get your eyes about spending all of eternity. Listen, what's he saying there? Listen, then we want to separate ourselves from everything having to do with sin, not, letting, not yielding our members to, as members of unrighteous, so that God can do his work through us here. H.D. Hobbes said this. He was a Baptist writer. He said what Baptists believe. Man is endowed with free will, and thus he's responsible for his choices. He is not a pawn in the hands of fate, nor is his conduct governed merely by physical forces apart from his will. Man is responsible to God for his acts. The sovereignty of God must not cancel man's freedom or else man loses his personality and is incapable of fellowship with God. God would become responsible for man's sin, of thought which is untenable with God. Let me give this illustration then a challenge. Many years ago, Harry Ironside, the great commentator, was asked about about this question about the sovereignty of God and election and the free will of man. And how do you reconcile the two? Harry Ironside gave one of the best illustrations, one of many, but one of the best illustrations. He said, here, let me put it to you this way. In front of me is a door. Whosoever will, the marquee above it says, whosoever will. Let them freely enter. I choose to go through that door. I'm that whosoever. But the moment I go through that door, there's a sign on the marquee as I enter into that presence. Before I came in, it says, whosoever, whosoever will, let him freely come. But inside, once I get in, elect according to the foreknowledge of God, 1 Peter 1, 2. So in other words, just mark this down. Elect, chosen, called, Always are in reference to us in our sanctification. It always is always in reference to saved people. It is never in reference to lost people. It is never in reference to unbelievers. Just study it. For instance, Jesus Christ is called the elect servant of God. Israel is called the elect nation of God, okay? You have to look in context here. Who is the elect, okay? Who, what reference does it have to? It's reference to a service for God. It's reference to doing something for God, okay? You, can't, you cannot have that position until you first have the possession. Now, why are we talking about it? Why did I spend a whole message confusing you about the doctor, the, the false doctrine of Calvinism? Why do I have you going home tonight with your head spinning and wondering, Pastor, I'm more confused than when I came in. I'm like a coo- in a cuckoo box. I'm not sure if I'm any better off on that. Why did you do that? Because Calvinism is a false doctrine. And you may not get all of it now, but you'll get it here. Okay. And look at verse 15 as I close. Now these brethren here at Thessalonica had no problem with this. And verse 15 he says, therefore. Now what? why is he therefore? Okay, he's summing everything up, right? Whenever you see the word therefore, he's summing everything up. He's coming to a conclusion. Therefore, brethren, you're in Jesus Christ. You're looking forward to that glory. You're living for him. You're chosen. You're in him. You're chosen to salvation. You have a position in him. You are his elect. In other words, you're elect in terms of God has a purpose to fulfill in your life. He says, therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which you have been taught, whether by word or epistle. Now, the last thing I want you to notice quickly on that, once I give that statement, I want you to notice the marker. Because Calvinism, is a, 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 a heresy, and as a false doctrine, we've got to mark it. We've got a market. Romans 16, 17 says we've got a market. Okay? Acts chapter 20, verses 29 and 30 talks about the fact that grievous woes enter in among you, okay? Now Calvinism is Satan's deadly flower. Calvinism is poison to any church. Calvinism advances advances because men and women are sympathetic and accepting it or naive to what it's all about. A Calvinist is a grievous woe a Calvinist that comes in the congregation is a wolf in sheep's clothing grievous wolves and by the way they enter in packs they're never alone they always congregate together and elect together and they're trying to make disciples themselves notice in Acts chapter 29 verse 30 he says "He says, also of your own selves shall men arise speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them Calvinists do not survive on evangelism they survive by making disciples after themselves They blend in with everyone else. They put a different spin and twist on words. They draw away disciples. They are divisive and they split churches. So Romans sixteen seventeen says, "Now I beseech you, brethren, mark them which cause divisions and offenses, contrary to the doctrine which you have learned, and avoid them." Let me say this tonight. I've got to. Clarify. There's so much more I can say. Number one, Calvinism is not welcome in Heritage Baptist Church. Calvinism is rejected. If you, are a, if you are privileged to be any kind of a Sunday school teacher, a club sponsor, or any capacity to influence people, you have any sympathy or tendency to Calvinism, you need to make a beeline to me, Brother Justin, Brother Irwin, Brother Daniel, and Brother AJ. You need to come see us like lickety-slip. If you have any question about it, if you're sympathetic or have leniencies toward that because you should not be teaching that capacity. You're going against our statement of faith and what we believe. Calvinism is Satan's deadly flower. Let me say this tonight. A church like ours that's growing like this. By the way, you won't have a lot of churches take a stand on Calvinism. You will not have a lot of churches take a stand on Calvinism, okay? But let me tell you this tonight. You just, if you just synthesize through everything I've, just said, I've said tonight, the last hour, Calvinism will destroy a church. I could give you a personal testimony of a lot of confrontations I've had with this We will not have it in this church. It's not gonna be here. We're marking it. Throw away your books. If you, can't, if you cannot rightly divide the word of truth and understand whether or not this Calvinistic and their leanies, don't go by the books. Most of those men I mentioned in the beginning, if you came in late, you missed a bunch of names and references. Don't go down that pathway. As I said earlier, almost all Protestant churches, community churches, neighborhood churches, Chinese churches, almost every Chinese church I know, their, their, their pastors or associates, their people are all Calvinistic. Why well, how do you know that? Because they all come out of the same seminaries. Cemeteries, you might say that, okay? <laughs> Many ethnic-oriented churches are Calvinistic. Oh, I know them. They come into church here. I'm frothing at the mouth. I'm preaching away. They don't like me within five minutes. They already know what we're all about. I don't even have to look, I don't even have to question. I can take a look at look in their eye, the twitch in their face, and I can tell automatically they're Calvinist. Yeah. And you be careful, church member. Because if you're hanging around somebody that's not all the way in here. And all the way in in our doctrine, and all the way in where we're at, that's a red flag. I'm not talking about blind loyalty, and I'm not talking cultic loyalty. Forget that. Okay? I'm going to be long gone from the one day from here. I'm talking about being loyal to the doctrine of the Word of God. That's what I'm talking about tonight. I said this earlier. Books about the Bible are not the Bible. And commentaries are filled with men's comments and opinions about the Bible, but it's not the Bible. You've got to get into the, say, Lord. Not a little bit confusing tonight, but you just hang with me tonight. Those verses should not bother you. Look at the context. Look at the context. We'll have some classes to teach you how to correctly interpret the Bible because you, all of you need that. You need to get that so you, can, you don't have to be afraid of those things and run from it. You say, well, I came to this church. And, and he, listen, you probably came, some of you came from other churches. You probably came to a church where the pastor was sympathetic towards Calvinism. Not all, but quite, quite a large majority of them are. And where do they get it from, from what they read and where they went to school. Where they got their training, who mentored them, where they got it from. There, okay. And I promise you this: majority of them are not evangelistic. Majority of them are not winning souls. Majority of them don't care about the things of God. And you just see this downward drift. And you find that they, where they get off on that, they get off on a lot of other doctrines as well there too, which is another subject altogether by itself. There, we have some members who are a church. They God led them to our church, and they came out of all that nonsense there. They really, man, I found the truth here at Heritage Baptist Church because the Bible is being preached here. Okay, okay. So let me help you tonight. I want you to do something to me tonight. Would you take a stand with me? We're marking Calvinism tonight. It will not be tolerated here. Well, they're coming in, and he holds a Calvinist position. You can hold to it, but you're not coming in. Now, some have slipped in, and some are attendees that look like members. Remember what Paul told those elders after this, grievous will shall enter in, not sparing the flock, making disciples of themselves. And it sounds really good. I mean, if you, you put a good twist on it, and, and this is a good way you can put I can put a twist on it and make it sound really appealing because it appeals to the intellectualism. Man, it doesn't touch your heart. It appeals to your intellectualism. Oh, yeah, that sounds like God really loves me, that he chose me. And yeah, he chose you, but he said this, brother, this person over here is going to go to hell. What kind of God is that? That's blasphemy. That's blasphemy against the character of God. I'm just saying tonight, you know, maybe it's more academic stuff like that, but take a stand with me. Mark them which cause divisions, opposition. Calvinism is not tolerant. It's not welcome at Heritage Baptistry. We're not going to, we're taking a stand. It's not, we're not eclectic to everybody. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, but you have to be a little bit narrow when it comes to the Word of God. Take a stand tonight. If you're having trouble with that, let's get it right this evening. Amen? Amen. Let's get it right tonight. Let's take a stand for the Lord. Let's love God, love His Word, and let's make sure that we keep a doctrinally pure church. Keep it pure for the glory of God.